You are listening to a sermon from Covenant Hope Church. Thank you for engaging with us. If you would like more information about our church family, please visit www.covenanthope.church. We pray that this sermon encourages and challenges you today. Well, good morning, CHC family. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Yes, my name is Cody. I'm one of the pastors here. And I have the opportunity to open up the scriptures for us regularly and love to do so. We're going to continue in our series, which we have called Hope Shaped Holiness, where we're walking through the letters to the Thessalonians. And if you are a guest today, we normally walk through books of the Bible together because we want to know what God has to say and not what uh, I believe, what Pastor Ryan believes, or anybody else thinks or has opinions about. We want to hear from God, and that's why we preach through books of the Bible. And if you're not a follower of Christ today, I pray that you will see that this is a place to learn about who God is and learn about who His people are and how we love Him and want to show you the grace that we've been extended ourselves. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those uh, hard-covered black Bibles in the pews in front of you and turn to page 1049. And as we start, I love that we sang that song. Nate, thanks for, for picking that song as we go into the sermon this morning that song represents all that we believe as Christians in a triune God, a God who has came into the world, died for sin, a God who has come for us and given his life but was raised three days later, and that we now can share in that future resurrection together, and that he's coming back for his people. We sing that song together. And as we come to this passage, I think it will be right for us to pray and I ask God to give us wisdom and humility and grace together as we walk through it this morning. So bow your heads with me and let's pray together. God, we come to your word today knowing it is good, it is righteous. As you tell us, it is good for reproof and for uh, rebuking and for correction and training in righteousness. God, I ask you today that we would grow from your word, that we would not be fearful, that we would not be confused, but that we would be a people who trust wholly, wholly in you and nothing else. We pray today as we work through this tough passage that it will be one that unites us and would not divide. That we would be able to stand on the gospel and its implications in our lives and that we may work to see the gospel spread all across the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Irrational fears. Who has one? I have some. I actually have some that you probably would laugh about. I have an irrational fear of spiders. You look at a spider and you're like, he's not that big. Um, except the ones near my faucet at my house. For whatever reason, they grow really, really big, and I don't get near them. I spray them with wasp spray because you can spray it from 20 feet away, and I can hit him, and he's not going to make it after a period of time. And so I probably use half the bottle to kill him. And so I have an irrational fear of this little, uh, little insect. He's able uh, to somehow, if I step on him, uh, I'm, he's able to bite me or hurt me in some way. That's an irrational fear because that spider can do nothing to me if I'm the one crushing him, right? So there's an irrational fear. There's other irrational fears that you may have. But where do irrational fears come from? What is underneath those irrational fears? At the end of the day, we call them irrational because they don't make sense. 
We call them irrational because there's an underlying belief that's false or faulty or incorrect. That's what's happening here in 2 Thessalonians 2. The people who are afraid, who are fearful, they've, they've communicated to Timothy and now Timothy to Paul that we, the day of the Lord's already come and so we're left behind. The day of the Lord has come and we have missed it. Or we, we don't know what to do now. We can have irrational fears and maybe an irrational fear about when Jesus is coming, the day of the Lord. So we must come to the Scriptures to look at what do we believe about our God and what is He going to do for us and what is He going to do about the world that we live in. If we believe God has entered into the world as the Messiah, then He will not leave us or forsake us. He tells us that before He goes back into heaven. And so as we look here at 2 Thessalonians 2, here's what we're going to see. Paul confronts the Thessalonians' confusion about the coming of the Lord with the reality of end times events. I'm specifically titling or, or, or giving this idea because Paul is talking about things that we don't have all the information on. So they're end times events. So what should we do this morning? What should we do this morning? Church, in no way. In no way does God want you to be fearful or confused. So, do not be troubled. We have hope in God's sovereignty over salvation history. We can trust our God. We can have hope in Him and what He is doing in the world. And there's some specific ways that we're going to do that this morning. I think the text speaks to us this morning. We find ourselves in one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible. And the most difficult passage that Paul writes to us. It's hard to understand. It's hard to make sense. It's hard to make sense of all the de details going on. And on top of that, there's information that the Thessalonians have that we don't have as he writes this to us. So it is most likely the most difficult passage we have from Paul. So what do we do this morning? If we can hope in God's sovereignty and we can trust Him, we approach this passage with humility, but trust in the details that we do have and the explaining that we do have from Paul. So if we are supposed to have hope and trust and not be troubled, there's three ideas that I want to walk through this morning that I think help us have hope in God's sovereignty over salvation history from from the past all the way to the future when Christ is going to return. So, three ideas this morning. The first idea, deception will lead us to confusion. Look there at verse 1. Now, concerning the day of the Lord Jesus Christ our being, and being gathered to Him. So, Paul starts off, he's following the hills of Christ's judgment. Remember back in chapter 1 last week? And Paul now turns to the other side of the coin. In chapter 1, he, Paul tells us, uh, he encourages us and the Thessalonians to press on in endurance by explaining how God is going to judge righteously. He's going to right all the wrongs. He's going to give a right sentence to all those who afflict them. And in essence, chapter 1 is speaking about the return of Christ in light of those who are afflicting the believers. In light of those who are in opposition to the believers. But now... 
Here in chapter 2, Paul writes concerning mainly the people of his church. As Paul transitions, he once again focuses our attention on the coming of Christ, on the return of the Lord Jesus. And notice, this return is a communal return. This is not my Jesus. This is our Jesus. Same thing that we just sang. We believe in this Jesus and how we are going to be gathered to Him. And this phrase, being gathered to Him, is sometimes used to talk about how the church gathered in the book of Acts. It's uh, talked about how uh, the, the church actually gathers physically. But I think when you take this uh, word and you take the day of the Lord, this is talking about what we saw in First Thessalonians chapter 4, where we are being gathered to Christ on the day of judgment. Some view this gathering as a gathering before the events or after the events, or maybe this is a spiritual idea of gathering. But here's the thing. Remember, Paul is trying to ready this young church for suffering. Both of these letters are for people who are in deep anguish, affliction, and suffering. So what Paul says here is he wants to ready us for that day. And and what happens in between to that day is potential suffering and opposition. Paul here is not giving us a hope of being taken out. He's giving us a hope in the midst of suffering, in the midst of an unjust world, in the midst of an enemy who is coming after us. And he's, Paul's less concerned of the outworking of the final day, at least the details, and more about how the Thessalonians are responding to it. Look there. He says, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has already come. It seems this young church has been extremely burdened by some false teaching. Paul says, he asked them pastorally. He comes alongside me and he asks them, do not be troubled. Do not be swayed away. Do not be easily upset. This means to not be unsettled. Don't lose your composure. Don't lose your conviction about who God is and what He's going to do. Do not lose your head or be persuaded that the sky is falling around you. And do not be troubled. Troubled being disturbed or alarmed. Do not be afraid. Paul is he's addressing a very, very anxious church who is worried and concerned. They do not know how to handle these ideas. The question, though, is how does this anxiety enter the church? Paul says it was by a prophecy, something like a sermon or a message or a teaching or a letter. Some think that it was Paul himself who wrote that this is what caused them to be anxious or that they misunderstood. But Paul's not so much concerned about the medium as he is the message. Paul is much more concerned whether it came from him or if they misunderstood him, rather, or it came from a sermon or a teaching or a prophecy, anything. He's much more concerned about the content of that message. Remember back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that we are to work out to test these things. And so the Thessalonians actually didn't do what Paul said in chapter 5 of the first letter. 
And so Satan is able to work in this uh, message and begin to cause anxiety in the church. Let's just stop and pause for just a second and say, if Satan is able to work and to disturb a church body through a letter or through some teaching, how much more in a day of our kind of media is he able to stir us up and cause us to anxiety? May we be careful what we put our eyes on and put our ears to. Because we have an enemy who is working against us and who wants to cause anxiety and trouble and to cause us to be unsettled. May we be very careful. Very careful of our enemy who wants to deceive us. So what's the message? Look at verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. What's the message? For that day will not come unless... the the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Paul is confronting this deception that the Thessalonians have believed Christ has already returned and that they were left to fend for themselves. There were some in the church that were proclaiming that the day of the Lord has already come. That they had missed out on salvation. They missed out on the world being judged. They, they were left behind. And when all along in his, le- his message in 1 Thessalonians was, you will not be left. You will not be left alone. You will not have to fend for yourselves. All things will be righted. You will be saved. And somehow they have been deceived into believing that they will not be saved. That they will not experience the grace and the mercy of God. Church, understand that deception is one of the biggest threats to our endurance. We can be tempted to believe the lies of our enemy and the lies of the world. And this begins to erode our confidence in God and in His Word. When you take out the truth of God's Word in your life, you will be tempted to be deceived by multiple streams, multiple situations, multiple different forms of content. When you take out God's Word, it enables us to be confused about God's return. There's a lot of pain and heartache that follows when we begin to shift our eyes away from God's Word and away from the truth. And Paul says, no, let me refocus you here. Let me refocus your hearts and your minds on the truth of what our God is going to do. Here's the, here's the problem, though. We come to this passage and we come to begin to talk about it and we begin, well, how does this play itself out? What are the details? We think of the end times. What's going to happen? Here's the problem. We fall into the same trap if we begin to speculate about some of the details that we don't have. Not just here, but in the Bible. And so we must be careful not to speculate about when Christ is coming back because He says Himself, I don't know when I am coming back. Only the Father knows. And then we must not speculate who this person is that, we're, that Paul is going to describe here. It harms our witness when we begin to throw out labels that we don't understand and begin to label people that we actually don't know. So be, let us be very careful be very careful. Deception will lead us to confusion, and, and confusion leads to heartache. 
we must continually place our hope in our God and hope in His gospel because that is what's going to deliver us in the end. So, the second idea that Paul gives. Truth leads us to hope. Truth leads us to hope. As we enter into the, one of the most difficult passages here from verse 3 to 8, it is important for us to understand that God's Word is given to us for a reason. God's Word is given to us for a reason. I truly believe that the reason Paul wrote this for them and for us now is to strengthen our trust in God and specifically His plan. Even when history looks like it's going to get no better, God is still in control. God is still on His throne. God is still working. So, here's how we're going to approach these next few verses. As truth leads us to hope, let's look at what we do know from the passage. Number one, the lawless one stands against Christ. Look at verse 3 again. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. Why should the church not be upset or alarmed or deceived? Paul says because that day, that day referring to the day of the Lord back in verse 1, will not take place until two other events happen. So first, Paul says that this apostasy will have to come first. This word means rebellion, and it's used two specific ways throughout the Bible and throughout history. One religious and one political. We could try to pick one or the other. I'm not sure that's helpful. I think that would be boxing Paul in. When we take this passage and others from Revelation, it seems that the apostasy is outright opposition to God, outright opposition to His people, and a world fully turned over to God's enemy. This is what the rebellion, this is what the apostasy looks like. It is this rebellion that then paves the way for the second event, the revelation of the man of lawlessness. This lawless one, this lawless man, he's literally a man against the law. He's the opposite of the law. He is a man of sin. And now look at how Paul describes him. So we've moved from, we know that there's going to be a time when the world is turned over to, to rebellion, which gives way to the lawless one who stands against Christ. So look at verse 4. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. The man of lawlessness stands directly opposed to God. He is the embodiment, we might could say, of this rebellion. And he has no need of God. No need of his laws. No need of his ethics or his morals. This opposition climaxes so much even to his own self-exaltation. When this lawless figure exalts himself over and above every soul idol and every religion, any object of worship, any idol, any god must be thrown away so that you can bow at his feet. It must be thrown to the wayside in the midst of the man of lawlessness. He does this by sitting in the temple. Now, there's lots of ways to think about this. Is this a physical temple? Is this in, in Israel? We're not quite sure, just to be really honest. We don't really know. But I, what I think is probably the most helpful interpretation here is that this is a metaphor. 
This is a metaphor. So when he sits down on, on the throne in the temple, where, what is the temple? It's the, it's the place that God is. It's, it's for God's people. Christ, Paul says that in Christ we are the temple. And so it's a metaphor. That this is the ultimate form of blasphemy. That he sits in the temple and proclaims himself to be God. You might ask, who is this man of lawlessness? This, this passage seems to characterize a person who is opposed to God and His law. From this passage and from looking at others and prayer, seeking wisdom this week, I think this, this is a literal historical person. I think He's coming. I think He's in the future. I think that this is the Antichrist that John writes. But it's possible that you view this person totally in the past. But here's why. John seems to help us understand this person and provides important flexibility. So I'm saying to you that the Antichrist is the man of lawlessness. Look at what John writes in 1 John 2.18. Listen to it. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many, many Antichrists have come. By this we know it is the last hour. We are in the last days. I mean, we are in the time between the resurrection and when Christ returns. Where John says there will be, will, will be little antichrist who point us to the final antichrist. The final lawless one. And John also writes in Revelation 13 when he's given a vision. And I want you to notice the similarities of chapter 13 and what happens here in 2 Thessalonians 2. The beast was given a mouth to utter boast and blasphemies. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It began to speak blasphemies against God, to blaspheme His name and His dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. And it was permitted to wage war against the saints and to conquer them. It seems to me that the beast does exactly what the man of lawlessness does here in chapter 2, in these verses. And when you take this passage with the other two, what we have to understand is it seems here that Paul is comparing and contrasting Jesus and the Antichrist, the true Christ. Both have comings, both have revelations in verses 6, 8, and 9. Both do miracles, signs, and wonders. Maybe for me, what's the most important thing here is that this is in the context of the day of the Lord. Which, yes, can be used, we see in the Old Testament, that can be used in multiple times, but now we see Paul use this as when Jesus is coming back. This is the day of the Lord. This is the day of judgment with chapter 1. So what does this mean? There absolutely can be little antichrist. Jesus seems to even acknowledge in himself. But they are all pointing us to a final antichrist, a final lawless one. Church, again, we must not try to speculate about who this is. I could literally fill up a whole chapter of the people that the church or others have said who the Antichrist is. From the Pope to political figures in America. That does no good for us. Does no good for us to begin to speculate about who that is. Only history and the judgment of God will tell us in the end who will be the lawless one. So, there is a lawless one who stands against Christ. But number two, there's a restrainer holding back lawlessness. Look there at verse 5. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this? Time out. 
information that we don't have. Right? So Paul said, don't you remember what I taught you when I was with you? Paul, I would really like to know that information here. It would be really helpful, but he doesn't give it to us. This shows us that we don't have all the details, and we must be very careful about how we interpret it and how we understand it. Paul must have taught the Thessalonians while he was with them about the Antichrist and the day of the Lord. This must not be confusing to them. And they seem to know much more about this than we do. So we must be careful to import our own context and our own thoughts and our own culture into the text. But understand, Paul wrote this for a reason. He wrote this to the Thessalonians for a reason. And we know that the Holy Spirit is the one who carries along the writers of the Bible. We know that the Holy Spirit is the one who's giving us this word today. So even though we don't know all the details about why Paul wrote this for the Thessalonians, the Holy Spirit gave this to us. And do not forget that. You come to these passages where we don't have all the details. God is still speaking to us. Look at verse 6. And you know what currently restrains him. Okay, remember, we don't know what restrains him totally. Continue in verse 6. So that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The man of lawlessness will have his day but he is currently being restrained. This means he's being held back. He, can't, he couldn't do what he needs to do in the final day. But this is a difficult part of the letter. Right? Many great thinkers, theologians, commentators have struggled on who this restrainer is. The great Augustine said, about this, who this is or what this is, I have no idea. Great Augustine, really appreciate your help on that insight there. It seems to me from the context though that at the very least what we do know He's restraining and it's a good influence in our world. I don't think this is evil. I don't think it's a person. I think from chapter 1 and chapter 2 that this is most likely God who is the restrainer. That, he's in, that He is sovereign and in control. And so I think it would not be a stretch that if this is God, He's probably speaking about God's Spirit in the world and by extension the church. But understand church... Paul is less concerned about who the restrainer is since they know who he is, and he's more concerned about the time frame. Do not be troubled. Why? Because the day of the Lord hasn't come. Why? Because the restrainer is still working in the world. The apostasy and the man of lawlessness has not come yet. You can trust that God is working still in the world, working against this evil, this wickedness. One of the reasons the Holy Spirit could have given this passage to us is because God wants us to trust Him in the midst of details that we don't have. The resurrection of Christ began the last days where one day there will be no more lawlessness. But right now we live in a broken world where evil is working and where lawlessness happens and where we see people give themselves over to sin. We have friends leave the faith. We have family members leave and decide, no, I'm going to do what I want to do because there is lawlessness working in the world. But our God is working to restrain that. Just think for a moment what the world would look at without God's grace. Think for a moment what your life would be like if you didn't have God's grace today. That's a scary world. So there is a restrainer working against the lawlessness. Now, let's go to number three. If there is a restrainer, then 
there is lawlessness working in the world. So that has to be true. Although God is working to restrain the evil and the wickedness, there's still lawlessness in our world. Look back at verse 7. Paul says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And Paul uses this word mystery to highlight how lawlessness operates in the world. How we don't even know it's there. Think about, think about a fish in water. Do you think the fish knows it's in water? Do we think about the air that we breathe? We don't really think about it. We just do it until someone tells you, do you breathe in oxygen? And so the same way that there's air for us and water for the fish, sin, wickedness, lawlessness is all around us. It's there. It's so woven itself in the fabric of our world and our lives that we don't even know it's there. This is what Jesus and Paul, when they talk about people being spiritually blinded, that lawlessness has so worked itself into the world that we don't even know that we're blind. I think that's what Paul means here, that this mystery is at work in the world. It will be this lawlessness that culminates into the man of lawlessness. And so, church, when we look here and when we look at our world, we have to understand the power of sin. We have to understand that we live in a world where people are blinded by their sin. Where we, even as Christians, now still struggle with the sin in this world, in our own hearts. And so when we look at our world, may we not become angry and bitter and frustrated. But may we be brought to compassion and sorrow and burden for our friends and our family who are blinded by their sin. Would it drive us to our knees because we need God to be the one that opens their eyes and their hearts? May we understand the power of sin so much so that it drives us to trust God more and drives us to hope in Him more because He's the only one that will do anything about it. Which brings us to number four. The Lord will crush all lawlessness. Whether you think it's now, in the future, later, or before. Look there at verse 8. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at his appearance of his coming. Although it's true that there's lawlessness working in the world, and lawlessness will culminate in a real person who will wreak havoc on the world and God's people, this will not be the last word. No. When our Christ returns, he will destroy the man of lawlessness with a single breath speaking to the swiftness and the severity of the destruction, of the doom that this person will receive. Last week we saw how the Lord will right all the wrongs in the world. No injustice will go unpunished. And you can guarantee that Christ, when He comes, He will crush His enemies forever. There will be no more wickedness. There will be no more sin. There will be no more lawlessness even those who try to imitate Him. This is the truth that we need. If you take nothing else away from today, verse 8 is what you need to memorize. Christ wins in the end. Our God is the one who is in control and He's the one who wins. We can have discussions on the, the events and the details of all the things happening here, but may we never forget. May we never lose focus. May we never be afraid because our God wins in the end. When you're tempted to fall away and when you're tempted to not endure, when you're tempted to that sin, 
it will all be destroyed by our good and gracious Savior who will reign as King and Lord over this world. We have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. No matter what comes our way, Christ will win in the end. The truth of Christ's final victory should lead us to hope. It should lead us to trust. But knowledge, hope, trust is not it. Which brings us to our final idea through verses 9 through 12. So knowledge must lead us to love. So Paul is now going to peek behind the curtain. He's going to let us look in. Look at who's really working behind the scenes. You can think of uh, Scooby-Doo. I don't know if you uh, remember watching Scooby-Doo, the old cartoon, when they would, the, you know, the gang would, would have to work through all the things, and they would get to the, the person who was wearing a mask, and they'd say, let's see who's under, who's under this mask, and they'd pull the mask off. and say, oh, well, we know who you are. This is what Paul does for us. We're not, we're not unaware. We know. Look at verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working. That's the mass being pulled off. With every kind of miracle, both signs and wonders, serving the lie, and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's work. He's the source. He's the reason. He's our enemy. He works to deceive the world into sin. And this has been his focus ever since the Garden of Eden. Notice, church, Satan is supernaturally working in behind the scenes. He works through the lawless one to rally the forces of evil against God. He's even able to supernaturally empower this lawless one to do miracles, signs, and wonders and gives him the ability to deceive. But these are fake. These are fake miracles, fake power, fake truths that he will try to pass off. They're fake now because they don't have power. Of course these miracles have power, but they're fake because they oppose God and His gospel. All of this power given to the Antichrist is for one sole reason, to deceive the world. To bind sin, to almost, to, almost like concrete, solidify sin in people's hearts. But notice, this deception is particularly focused on those who are perishing. Those, that is, those who don't know God. But see how Paul explains what is taking place in them. Right? They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. Paul gives a clear warning to those of us who flirt with sin. These people are perishing because they, it's the reason, did not accept the love of the truth. They refused to love the truth. They may know it in their minds. They may know what's true, but they don't love it and therefore they don't give their lives to it. Look at verse 11. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie. So that all will be condemned. Those who did not work, did not believe the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. For this reason, it's a very important phrase in Paul's argument. Satan's working in the world. He empowers this, this delusion, this lie. But God is still there. But those who are perishing, it is they who have rejected by not loving the truth. And now God enters into this, the protagonist of our story, the, the hero of our story. He enters into this 
And God responds to their unbelief and their rejection by sending them a delusion. We've seen God do this throughout Scripture. But this is a consequence. Not the cause of their choice. God once again gives people what they desire, what they believe, what they want. In Romans 1.24, it says God delivered them over to their desires. It's the same thing that's happening here. God will give us, in the end, just like last week, what we want. It's of great importance to observe, observe, though, that the opposite of believing the truth is what? It's not error. It's not false doctrine. Paul says it's delighting in wickedness. This is because truth has moral implications. Because it makes demands on our life. Evil... Not error is the root problem. It is not that we know all the details and that we have all the right Bible verses memorized and we know the books of the Bible and we do all the right things. That, that does nothing for us. It does nothing for you. And I would, be, I would be unkind to you if I somehow we left today and you were, really, you were really strengthening your faith because, okay, hey, here are things that we know and we can move forward. No. What you need to know today, church, is that it doesn't matter what you know if it doesn't drive you to love the Savior who's in control of all of it. It doesn't matter what details and how many books you've read and all the things that you have that you've done for the church. It doesn't matter because the opposite of knowledge is not error. It's wickedness. And so we're tempted here to potentially find confidence in our own thinking, in our own reason, in our own study. And Paul says, no. It doesn't matter what you know. It matters if that knowledge leads you to love. It's not enough that we know the truth. It's not enough that we get all the details right. God cares way more about our hearts. Do we love the truth? Do we love Him? And does that love produce hope in God, in His sovereignty and in His plan, not in the details of the plan? See the difference there. It's not about do we, do we have hope in the details of God's plan, or do we have hope in the God over all the details? If we leave today and do not trust God more, then I have failed you. But my prayer for us this week is that this knowledge, some that, that we don't even have, drives us to love our God more than anything else. The gospel is not about knowledge or doctrine or information. Following Christ is about loving Him and loving His Word. And may you be strengthened this morning. May you grow in humility, but may you most grow in love for a God who is working against all kinds of wickedness and lawlessness for you. Pray with me. God, I ask you today that we, as we started this morning, that we would be a people who are humble, be a people who trust you, a people who, even though we don't have all the details, that we would, that we would look to you. So God, would we, as we hopefully understand a little more this morning, but may that understanding push us to love You. May that understanding undergird a foundation of, of true love for You. 
I pray this week as we get to have conversations about your word, which are good and right and fun, that we would be gracious and humble. And then we would always point each other to the truth that you are coming back and that you will destroy all evil. That you will not let injustice rule or reign. So God, we commit these things to you. Would your word grow in us? Would it grow like a vine deep in our hearts so that we may trust you and hope in you and love you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.